Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Wendy C. Ortiz. Los Angeles is a character in my writing. This sense of place, of being part of a place, comes through in the work of Wendy C. Ortiz. Balancing the worlds of memoir writing and psychotherapy, Wendy's words hit us in the gut, caress our cheeks, and make us come in a dance of honesty, wit, and something else entirely, something we can't quite express but certainly won't turn away. Wendy, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor to just talk with you for an extended period of time. I'm so excited uh, to have you on this show. I have been a fan of your work since I discovered you on Twitter about a year and a half ago um, and uh, read your first memoir called Excavation. And... I'm just so grateful that you said yes and that we can sit down and have this conversation. Yes, me too. Thank you. I want to start off by asking you, what is writing to you? Writing to me, well, it feels like, I mean, that that is such a, it's an easy and a difficult question for me because it's, it's kind of everything. And it's always been everything to me. So when I first started writing, you know, at six years old, I remember writing in journals and then I remember writing ghost stories and poems. And, you know, I even like created a little zine when I was in second grade. All of that felt totally natural and just a part of my experience. And so I I guess it's really hard for me to separate writing and me. Um, Writing when I have, when I haven't had enough time to write, I've had, you know, obviously we all struggle with that, but there were some particular periods in my life where I truly felt like I did not have the space, time, or energy to write anything. And during those times were the only times in my life where I actually would, would joke with people that if I didn't have time to write, I'd, I, I would feel homicidal but really what I was saying was that I felt suicidal. Mm. So I know how important it is for me to have it as a part of my life, as part of my everyday life. Um, and like I said, I, I can't really separate myself from writing. So it's everything. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's part of my life forever. I hope, you know, I don't know what's going to happen down the road, but um, I don't see it ever being apart from me. It's a relationship. It's a, like a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you started writing at six and you've talked a lot about uh, the importance of keeping a journal for you and how for years you kept really meticulous journals about your life and your experiences. And a lot of that journaling ended up becoming your first book, Excavation, a memoir, where you yeah, rely on those details from your journal pages um, to tell the story of the relationship you had with a high school teacher and 
um, I'd love to know the importance of telling that story using the physical evidence of your journals and how you think it might have been different had you not had that material. Yeah, I can't even imagine not having the material because whenever I open those journals and look at them, I slip into that place so very easily. You know, I've I've said before how I feel like internally I have still like a 14-year-old voice and a 21-year-old voice. And for some reason, they're always in sevens. I have the 28-year-old voice. I'm just now starting to have a 35-year-old voice. Mm. Um, they all exist in me. They all have things to say and opinions. And, you know, sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're cutting, but like I differentiate those voices. So I have that 14 year old voice in me still, but being able to go into the journals and actually see what I was saying, what, what details I thought were important, um, what, what dialogue I thought was important because I would write out a lot of dialogue. Um, mm. If I didn't have any of that, I imagine the book would be pretty different. I also imagine there would be some errors in terms of time because when I wrote original drafts and then looked back at the journals, I realized that I had gotten some times wrong. So it was useful to have them in that sense. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to imagine not having access to all of those journals and then trying to write something. I mean, certainly I, I, I also write fiction and I don't have something that I can like look at and go, okay, what was happening there? And that's probably why I struggle really hard with fiction and it takes me years to write one short story. But with the journals, having all of that access, I mean, I'm constantly looking at them and even things that happened like a month ago, um, which is far too soon for me to write about, but I've tried to. Just the other day, I wrote something that was based on some things that had happened a month ago. Those journal entries are super useful for getting me back, right back into that space again, just to, you know, to feel all of it, you know, and it's also really difficult to pull myself out of as well. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I need all of that. It's all just like record keeping and notes. And that's always how I've been mm -hmm. and always how I've, always how I've written. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because you have a new book that just came out called mm -hmm. Hollywood Notebook, and yes. it is a prose poemish memoir. It's a, mm -hmm. uh, a collection of um, 89 short pieces. Some are a few lines or a paragraph, and mm -hmm. some are multiple pages. But um, I'd like to know, it's my understanding that book really came out of a blog that you used to keep online yes. mm -hmm. and how using that blog as the base and the record for this memoir is different from your handwritten journals. Yes. So, you know, this blog was kept, I, I actually don't, I can't say that I know the history of like when blogs really started. I was not ever a live journal person. I didn't participate in a lot of like the early blogging that was happening. This was created um, by a friend of mine. She gave me some website space and said, do whatever you want with it. And I called it Lab of Lux. And I was thinking, like, I'm just going to write whatever comes up. 
and just posted on this blog, you know, and obviously I, I understood it was public, but that would be the, the main difference between like the journals and what's up on the blog is I'm definitely doing a lot more um, obfuscating for, you know, like obvious reasons. I, I am not telling the whole world what's happening with me um, on a blog because that's just not my way. Like I will give pieces here and there, but I'm never gonna reveal everything um, on a, like a blog space. So the stuff that's in my journal, that is super private. There are things in there that, you know, I already have ideas about like, once my daughter's old enough to look at these things or if I die, you know, when I die, what kind of um, will do I want? Like, I wanna be able to say, you can't look at these until you're of a certain mm -hmm. age because I don't think she would understand um, everything that's in those journals. But um, yeah, I, I feel like the journals are the super personal space that is never going to be penetrated by anybody while I'm alive. And the blog space is something where I'm willing to give bits and pieces of my interior to a bunch of unknown people. And, you know, I had friends that I knew were reading the blog and sort of keeping track of me in that way, but it still wasn't all of the information. And it also had a very specific voice. And that's the voice that's, you know, carried through in Hollywood Notebook. Um, I just left Olympia, Washington. I had left a, a long-term relationship. I was moving back to Los Angeles and just completely confused about what I was going to be doing with my life. Um, and I immediately got an, a, a really good job and an apartment and was living alone. And I was 28 years old and just going, what do people do? Like, how do you meet people? What do you, I'd come from this very small, close-knit community that I'd spent time in for the previous eight years when I was in Olympia. And then I was suddenly back in this place that was my home, technically, because it's Los Angeles, but I was living in a different part of the city than I had ever lived. And I was suddenly an adult and, you know, I left Los Angeles when I was 20 and coming back at 28, I was a completely different person. So it's basically a story of me trying to navigate what it was like to really be an adult in the place where I grew up in, um, have the relationships that I was having and just trying to figure out what, what to do with myself. Like, really basic kinds of questions would jump out at me every day. Like I would literally look at people in the street and look into their eyes and think, how do you know when someone is the one? Is there a one? Mm. How do people fall in love? It was like I was starting from square one or something. It was, it was a really bizarre experience. And the, the voice of that book um, is a voice that I don't, have total access to anymore. Like I have bits and pieces of that voice, but it's, it's a very different voice from excavation. And it's a voice that, that I, I personally feel really good about and wish that I still could write like long passages that way. I can do short passages in that voice, but it's such a different voice that I, I don't have complete access to anymore. Mm. Um, but yes, it was a blog. And I basically, when, when the blog came down, when the website went down, I just captured all of the text, kept it in a file, thought maybe someday I'll do something with this. And then in 2012, at the end of 2012, 
I had time to look at it and it was like 365 pages, single spaced of text and included like people's comments and stuff. So I basically went in and edited that thing hard. And once I felt like it was in a a place that somebody could look at it, I sent it to one publisher and I wanted it to be a Los Angeles publisher because it's a book about Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a character in most of my work. So it made sense to just send it to an LA-based press. And so that that's kind of the story of how it came to be from a from a blog space to to an actual book. Mm, I love that. And you mention LA as a character in your work and mm-hmm. and you were born in LA, you were raised in LA and then you live in LA now. Yes. Aside from that time, those 8 years you spent in Olympia, mm-hmm. you have always been in LA. And I'm I'm very fascinated by this as someone who has lived a lot of different places mm-hmm. and left places vowing never to return. <laughs> um, this idea of being so rooted in place and a place like L.A., which is so many places at the same time. Yes, definitely. I'd love to know how you really are able to write so clearly and so uh, vividly about a place that you experience every day. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that part of it is feeling so a part of this place that it's almost like writing, like I feel so such a part of Los Angeles. And I also know what it's like to feel not a part of something. Um, in Olympia, I had moments where I felt like I was truly a part of it, but I definitely felt like an outsider most of the time and felt like, what is what am I doing here? What's my place here exactly? So Los Angeles to me is a place where I've always felt extremely comfortable. Um, there are definitely parts of the city that like are not my favorites and that I don't really venture into very much, but... Um, since I've moved back, I've lived in places that I didn't even know about when I left Los Angeles. Um, I, I don't really go back to where I grew up very often. Um, but when I do, I definitely, it's, it's, it's a mixed experience because it, it holds a lot of memories, both, you know, good and bad. But, um, it's just such a part of me in the same way that writing is. I feel like I don't know where I begin and, you know, Los Angeles ends. It's like, we're just, we're Mm. intertwined so hard. And I have like so many experiences here. I can drive somebody around and like point out all of these places where so many different things have happened to me or things that I saw or people that I met. And it's, I love that feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, like that, that's part of feeling rooted here is that there's all of this history here. And then there's like the history that I'm in the process of making, like the things that, that are important to to me as a parent, like places that I would never have gone into that now are a part of my experience because I have a kid mm-hmm. or taking my kid to the places that I went to as a kid myself. I mean, that kind of blows my mind sometimes. It's, I love this place so much. I can't really imagine leaving it again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it would be it would be a huge rupture for me, I imagine, if I tried to leave. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that you've done while in LA is um, you are the co-founder of the Rapsodomancy Reading Series. And I'd love to know how that came to be and what that means to you creating this reading series in this place that you are so much a part of. So Rapsodomancy came about in 2004. So I had left, I, you know, graduated from my MFA program in 2002. And one of the things that one of my mentors always talked about, uh, my mentor, Eloise Klein-Healy, who is an incredible Los Angeles poet. Um, one of the things she always talked about was like, what do you do once you graduate? Like, what kinds of connections do you make? What kind of work do you do in your literary community to stay connected? And, you know, I went to readings from time to time back then, but I was never really wowed. And I felt like I wanted something different in a reading series um, or just in any kind of reading that happened. And I had a friend who graduated from the same program and we, we, we started hanging out a lot and talking about the kind of readings that we wanted to go to. We didn't want to go to any more bookstore readings. We wanted to go to a reading in a bar. And strangely, there didn't seem to be that many readings in bars happening in Los Angeles back then. Um, so, and a couple that I know of now started around the same time or just the year before. And I wasn't even aware of them back then. So um, Andrea Quaid and I, decided that we were going to approach a bar that we liked that was in our neighborhood. And we were basically going to treat the whole reading series as like a wish list. Like who would I love to have come and read for me in my living room? And that's how we started doing programming was just like, who do you want to see? Like, who would you love to have here and host? And so we did that for, you know, the first few years, just kind of like, flying by the seat of our pants. We didn't have a budget. We, um, you know, just got some equipment, like the, the very basic equipment we would need for this reading series. We committed to doing it every other month so that it wouldn't feel overwhelming. We helped each other out a lot. There were some things that we did back then that I don't do anymore now because they take too much time or too much paper, like having programs, things like that. Um, but we just kind of build a mo built some kind of momentum with it and it started to become more well-known. And then she um, went to do a graduate program um, outside of Los Angeles. So I just took it on myself. Um, I can't remember what year that was, maybe 07 or 08. And so from that point on, I was the sole programmer um, and curator and host of the series. And with a tech person, always with a tech person, because i that's not my that's not my thing. So it was just kind of like, okay, let's just keep doing this. You know, who do I, who do I want to have come read? Who would mm -hmm. I love to have read? And then people started telling each other about it. And then I started getting approached by people from outside of Los Angeles saying, Hey, I'm coming into town. Um, I wonder if you have space for me. So it became a thing where I was suddenly booking out like a year in advance. Um, and it's been that way ever since. It's taken a different form for 2015. I'm doing some things differently. 
um, for a variety of reasons, but um, for 10 years, it was every other month and it featured four writers, um, two that were considered emerging writers, two established writers. I like to always have at least half poetry, half prose. Um, and I wanted it to not just be like the same names that you always hear are reading. I wanted to have different readers all the time. Um, because in a place like Los Angeles, there are so many different literary communities spread out all over the city. Um, if I saw that like, you know, the same names keep popping up, I wanted to kind of go outside of the range of that and, and see who else was out there. So, um, yeah, then it, it definitely became its own machine and kind of became this easy thing that I could do every other month and get that fix of like being in a bar and hanging out with other writers. And um, there's definitely like a core audience mm. who I can pretty much count on to show up at things, which is being a little bit tweaked right now because I've changed the format, but we're still finding our footing. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing that... Um that sense of community that comes from just this uh, one idea, right? Mm. Like, I, mm -hmm. I want to go to a different kind of reading. Um, I know for me, this show has really yes. taken on that same dynamic of, you know, I wanted to listen to a podcast about writing uh, yeah. that featured women. Awesome. And <laughs> since there wasn't one that I could find, I was like, well, I'll just make it. Yes. And yes. then – it's really take on, taken on this life of its own. And, and I'm so grateful because mm -hmm. I think about how many more people it's reaching mm -hmm. than if I had just said to myself, oh, you know, I really wish this thing existed. Right, right. Um, and hadn't done anything about it. So yes. I love um, I love the story of creating it and that it is really something that, comes from that place of, I must not be alone in this, so let's create something. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wendy, I'd love it if you might share some of your work with us. Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from basically something that's numbered in threes, and it's, it's just the first two. And it's a piece called Interiors that was published in Pank Magazine a couple of years ago. One, in the dark, my toes curl and touch the floor length vertical blinds. I hate vertical blinds, but they are not going to change for me. It's not my apartment after all. My 27-year-old boyfriend wants to go down on me. I've done that. He is the boyfriend who reads books about sex, who encourages my interest in porn. He is the boyfriend who is smarter and funnier than anyone I've had sex with in the six years I've been having sex with men. I'm barely 20. The mini drama of it is that on the other side of the blinds is the walkway of the courtyard and all the other apartment inhabitants could just happen by. So could my boyfriend's friend, Mike, who I think is sort of cute, though a little dumb. My boyfriend, though, is cute and smart, but I didn't always think he was hot. In fact, I shrank away from him when he intentionally sat next to me in the first class meeting of Anthropology of Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft, he complimented my rosebud earrings and my recycled paper. We became study partners. He made me laugh, and when I laughed, which was almost all of the time we were together, I noticed my panties got wet consistently, undeniably. We became lovers. We fell in love. So I let my toes flex, 
They feel hot, like the circulation in them has gone berserk as he fucks me with his tongue. Okay, no, I have never done this. I mean, not like this. Holy shit, this is a new day. This is a new life. He always has the radio on, KCRW, a station new to me where I'm learning this new language of music. He has his own apartment, which is also strange, a foreign, exciting land to me, a place one calls their own, decorates themselves, has whatever kind of sex they want all over the place as we have, the kitchen table, the counter, the toilet, the bathtub, the floor. I live with my mother, though I'm about to embark on a transfer to a mysterious, sexy college in the Pacific Northwest where I will study political economy and social change, among other things. I don't yet know that my boyfriend will follow me up there. Right now, all I know is that I am turned on by the fact that he's a little older than me and not 15 years older than me like the man I'm trying to forget. I'm turned on by his love of women and their bodies and how he loves me and my body. The body I've messed with, various drugs ingested, reckless and dangerous diets, and inordinate amounts of alcohol. I'm starting to leave all that behind because what he is doing with his tongue and what he does with me all the time, how he looks at me, how he talks to me, is making me consider I truly am hot. And most of my hotness is actually my brain and the parts of my body I've been exasperated with, my thick thighs, my small but pert boobs, my hair that wants to perpetually curl and go wild when I want it straight, tamed. His futon jiggles, which is common now with all of our fucking, but I am the cause of this jiggle, my squirming becoming more of a bucking that I can't control. A song plays out on the stereo, a band new to us that we really like, Smashing Pumpkins. The sound of a bell tolling and a seductive voice accompanies me on this thrashing journey to a place I have truly never been. I have come, oh, I've come plenty of times before, but not like this, his studio apartment, the universe, the window, a membrane I want to burst through, my toes feeling like fire, clenching, unclenching, wanting to grind not just my cunt, but my ass, everything up into his face. And I do, and I burst, millions of colors, more than I ever dreamed, light up the darkness, explode, push my groin up and out, and then he's matching my slower rhythm, the fall, the sighing, the mess of wetness underneath me, on his face, on my inner thighs. I don't yet know that when we are living up north, we will experiment with non-monogamy, and his face will be between the thighs of another woman, and my cunt will be explored by my good friend's tongue on my own futon in my own apartment. I don't yet know this will be our undoing. And years later, after we've been broken up for a few years, when I agree to meet him at the airport coffee shop before I head back to Los Angeles, which is home again, he will tell me this. You know what I miss the most? What? licking your pussy till you came. And with that, I smiled, picked up my bag, walked away into the safety of the security line. Bye-bye. Two. It's after two in the morning and I escape to the bathroom next door to my bedroom. I'll never think of this as my bathroom, even though my father moved out a year ago. So it's even weirder when I get down on the linoleum and start the familiar rub grind to get me off on my father's bathroom floor. There's no way I'll wake up my mom. She's passed out in the living room, the TV volume of white noise. I'm tired but happy. I'm coming down now. Yeah, this must be it, the coming down. The day started around 11 in the morning when I let Veronica put the tiny square piece of paper on my tongue. Within an hour, I was in on it. I was feeling that thing that she described to me, only it was so much better. 
Yes, the plants are breathing. Yes, the swimming pool is multi-layered and shimmering. Yes, I want to chew on tinfoil. Get me some orange juice. Intensify, intensify. Her mom was coming home unexpectedly and she had to get me out of there. So I called Ed, housemate and sometime friend of the eighth grade teacher I'd been fooling around with. The phone was a foreign object to me and after pressing all the buttons at once, then one at a time, Veronica forced me to push the numbers to get someone over there to shuttle me off. Ed came. He took me for a drive and things happened between us, things that seemed ridiculous later, especially because I was only 15 and on my first acid trip. It wasn't Ed I thought of when I was humping the bathroom floor though. In fact, it was hard in general to concentrate on any particular person. We'd been through it that day. We'd been riding around in a car that got pulled over and our drug dealers had to split because the car got impounded, which meant we were bussing it. We watched The Exorcist and I laughed my ass off. I bounced pennies off the carpet to examine the trails they left for what seemed like forever. In the middle of the night, as we walked to my house from the bus stop, talking ourselves down to a degree, or trying to, I asked Veronica if she saw the words taking shape on the lawns that we were walking past. No, she said, and laughed. Oh, I said, ugh. For many years, I would think that 15 was the best year of my life. I would point to nights like this one as evidence. We crossed lines, zigzagged, fell down, and up. We opened car doors with abandon, got inside. We spoke directly to danger and let it touch us, but somehow got away, clean and okay, with a pack of cigarettes and maybe some Boone's Farm for our trouble. Grinding the linoleum with its scrap of bathroom rug underneath me, this was familiar. This was safe. This was a tried and true way of meeting mundane reality again. An orgasm. It was all I needed to connect back to the rational, straightforward plane everyone else was on. What to think about. What to think about. Bodies. Tits. Veronica sitting on the floor of my bedroom watching music videos on TV, coming down herself, smoking cigarette after cigarette. My hip bones were knobbing against the floor. Women, blurry faces, sharply defined bodies, hip curves, side swell of tit curves, juicy ass curves, flying, flying, gyrating, sweating, then, oh, sucking in of breath to be silent, stealth, slow exhale, landing, landing. I pulled myself to a sitting position. The lights above the mirror tinkled and giggled. Oh God, nope, not down just yet. Time to return to the lair of my room, try something else, a cigarette. And that, those are the first two sections of that piece. There's a third one that you can find online. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, it's, I feel like I have lived long enough to have received so much good advice. And certainly in my experience as a therapist, like advice is something that I don't like to give. Um, it's, you know, I, I tend to have this feeling as a therapist and I operate this way as a therapist that people know the answers and I'm just there to ask the right questions so that they can get to their own answers. I am not the expert, mm. but there are definitely pieces of advice that are useful for me. I just don't feel like it's ever my job to, to give out advice. Um, one thing though, that I, it, it's like a note that I have on my phone so that I can actually look at it from time to time and remember um, is a piece of advice 
um, it wasn't actually given to me as advice. It was probably, I was having a little bit of a meltdown in some way. And then a friend said this and I just put it on my phone so that I would remember it because I can look at it and know exactly what was happening. Um, and it's just these words, know where it comes from in you, understand its position. And what those words mean to me, um, I mean, there's so many ways to interpret this, but it, this sometimes it's about writing for me, know where it comes from in you, understand its position. When I feel totally overwhelmed by something that I'm writing, something that really scares me to write, um, I, I, I feel like it's part of my, my job as a writer to know where it comes from in me. Um, to understand why it has the position it has and why I'm even choosing to tell it. Um, and sometimes that piece about knowing where it comes from in you is like the most overwhelming thing of all. But I don't want to shy away from it because it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I think that this is also, these are lines that can can be used in everyday life, like certainly in terms of behavior. Like, you know, when I said earlier that I have these different, um, this, these different ages in me. Um, I, when I look at what the 14 year old is saying versus what the 21 year old is saying versus the me now and what she says, um, it's important for me to know who's who and like why that part is there and why it even wants to have a position because all of those inform my behavior. Um, and they definitely inform my writing. But I need to know where, where it comes from. And I don't want to operate in a way in life or in writing where I don't understand those positions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, I hope that that doesn't sound too vague, but those are things that it's basically, it comes down to like a, a certain kind of self-knowledge um, that I don't even know is possible um, for people of a certain age, you know, like at least speaking for myself, like I, I didn't have, I couldn't have had the self-knowledge, you know, that I had, that I have now, like, it's just impossible. I couldn't have written some of the, some of the things that I've written at a younger age. I just couldn't have, I didn't have, I didn't know where it came from in me yet. I didn't understand mm -hmm. what its position was. Now that I feel like I have some grasp of that, I think it allows me to be able to write and be in a certain way that I've always wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand this like um, really clearly mm -hmm. for myself. Um, I recently turned 30 and I realized that there were stories I'd been wanting to tell and wanting to write yes. um, for years. And I, you know, every time I sat down to tell them or to write them, it, it was it was not working. They weren't the stories that I knew I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. um, and then once I turned 30, I had this idea like, oh, okay. Like I have a, a much clearer understanding of um, how I want to live in the world. Yes. And the, the way that I tell these stories, um, I want it to reflect that. And yes. that conscious choice of uh -huh. how I want to exist. And so it's amazing how you can try to write about the same subject or theme or experience. Mm -hmm. And the way that you write about it 
over time mm-hmm. is so different. Absolutely. And the ways that we share those stories and the impact that they have. Yes. And that's that's one of the things that I I guess I find a little bit troubling about the internet era of, you know, like I can just throw something up on the internet um, and then it's there forever. Um, and it might not have been ready. I might not have been, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, that's, that's part of my, my own personal process of like, it takes me years to really digest an experience before I can write about it. If you ask me to write about something um, that happened last month, um, it's, it's not going to be great. It's going to be first draft for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just my process. And I, I'm, it's great when writers can be fast and like, you know, read something and write something in response or, you know, things just come out of them. I envy that. But at the same time, I'm happy with the process that I have. I know that, like, you know, I get asked a lot about writing excavation. If I had written excavation or tried to really put it out there when I was 30 versus when I was 40, it would be a completely different book. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I'm grateful that it turned out the way that I wanted it to. And I have to imagine that a great part of that is because I let it sit and simmer and worked on it and came back to it and left it alone. And, you know, I I would just keep going back and forth with it. And it took that much time to get it to a point where I was very happy with it. Mm -hmm. You are currently working on your next book among other things. Um, But you're working on a memoir based on an essay that was published in the New York Times in their Modern Love column Mm -hmm. about um, coming to accept a moment and a part of you um, that has changed your life since then. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd love if you'd be willing to share a little bit about um, what that is and... um, why it's important for you to tell that story now. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because to, to be perfectly honest, I don't feel like it's the story that I want to be telling right now, but it is the story that um, basically, you know, my agent is like, we should try to sell this story. I'm being totally <laughs> frank here. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, I've, and I've said to her too, you know, it usually takes me a lot longer. Um, like I need time between an experience and when I can write it, but you know, that's not, that's just not how the publishing world always works. So I am working on this kind of with this knowledge in the back of my head of like, okay, this is going to be a new experience because I don't typically write this fast after something has happened. Um, Somehow I did it for that column, but, you know, we're only talking like 800 words or something. So I was able to, to, you know, process enough to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's a story that I think, you know, is going to, the story definitely impacts people. And I learned that, you know, after the column came out and started receiving emails from strangers from all over the country so I know the, the kind of impact that kind of story can have, but it's hard for me to really wrap my brain around like, oh, I'm really going to do this book now. Um, <laughs> I have like a sense of, of, of the map of the book, 
Um, but it's totally in the stage for me where I'm not writing anything down yet. I'm just constantly thinking about it in the back of my head. Um, and then the things that I actually want to be working on, those kind of slip out of me and are in different stages right now. Those are things that I'm, I'm getting to write that technically I shouldn't be focused on right now, but that's how it works. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the story though is really, it's like a love story. You know, I, it's not like a love story. It is a love story, but it's like about different kinds of love and the kind of love that I had with my ex-husband and, you know, how I still, I, I feel like I, I always look at that experience and think there, I, I see every reason why I married this person and I don't regret that it happened. But um, it was unfortunate that it was the catalyst for, you know, the rupture of our relationship. But I had to get to the next place. And at the time, he was able to understand that and support me, you know, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And that's what the essay is about, really. Um, but the book itself is, is going to end up being the story of that relationship, which led me into the next relationship where I would finally feel comfortable enough, um, which is a huge understatement. It's, it's much more than feeling comfortable, but to, to really own my queer identity and live in a way that I knew felt much more like myself than it ever did when I was partnered with men. Mm. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where the book is headed. And it's like, it's going to be essays. It's not going to be like a, a, a straight chronological memoir. It's definitely going to take an, an essay format. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's still, it's still brewing. It's still, you know, trying to find its way out. But I also have like a, a weekend booked at the end of this month where I will go away for two nights from my family and try and hammer out a lot of it or mm. some of it. I've got, I've got to come up with 20 to 40 pages here pretty soon. So, <laughs> and you know, by the time this airs, hopefully it will be almost finished, but who really knows? Yeah. It is <laughs> the fickle muse of writing. Yes. Um, you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, your work as a therapist. And, um, one of the things that you've talked about before, and I just really love, the ways that you talk about this and the ways that you approach this is um, your life as a licensed marriage and family therapist and your life as a writer telling your stories and the ways that you both um, bring those identities together and also um, the way that you are really clear about the line and the boundaries between them. Um, one of the things I love about you is when you talk about writing, and particularly when you talk about writing nonfiction and memoir and things that involve other people and could be um, damaging or potentially damaging to other people, um, and how you have that sense of identity and those boundaries. And I'm, I'd love to know really how you came to that place. You know, I feel like there... So... Yeah, that's there's there's a lot of parts there. One that I'm thinking of is, you know, like the, the chapter in excavation where I'm talking about boundaries and how I basically for many, many years did not understand boundaries, had really 
you know, it was not a part of my vocabulary. They were pretty loose. Um, and then once I learned about boundaries, um, I went overboard, which I think is normal now that I can look back at it. But I went overboard with boundaries and suddenly had all of these very rigid boundaries um, that I felt were protecting me. And it took, an, it took more years to get past that and get to a place where it was like, oh, I can have flexible boundaries and still feel safe in the world. Mm. Um, and for me, a lot of my boundaries have to do with how much I'm willing to share. And that may sound totally crazy coming from somebody who is called a memoirist, but I am never giving the reader everything. And, you know, if anybody thinks that the memoirists are like they're mistaken. I mean, there's just, there's plenty that's private to me that I will never, ever, ever give away. Mm -hmm. um, and that is part of my, that's part of like, you could call it self-care. You could, you know, it's also just like, I like to have my own private inner life that will never get shared with anybody. So um, on top of that, I also have, um, I'm, I'm actually a registered marriage and family therapist intern. Hopefully as soon as next year, I will not be an intern and I will be full-fledged. But um, part of my training is a lot about boundaries. I mean, you know, there are so many boundaries um, in terms of law and ethics around um, psychotherapy. And um, I've definitely experimented with, you know, like the most rigid boundaries to boundaries that are more flexible. Like there are all of these stereotypes about therapy and therapists out there, you know, certainly from, from like just pop culture references, anything that you can imagine where you see like what people say and do inside the room. Um, I would have to say that I have pretty rigid boundaries around a lot of things. And then I discovered that with some clients, there's an ability to be more relational and to share a little bit more of myself. And now here I have these books that, you know, any of my clients, if they were to ever like Google my name or something, they could go find these books and read them. And my feeling is if you want to bring that into the room, like feelings that you had reading the book of your therapist, I welcome that. Um, I will still be protective about my personal life to some degree, just as I have in my books. But um, I think that it's material because it's not really about me. It's about what impact the writing had, mm. you know, on, mm -hmm. on the person who's bringing it to me, bringing me that material. So um, I was actually just reading, there's a fantastic interview with Mary Carr from the Paris Review. I don't even know how old it is. Um, but I, I clicked on it. It was on Twitter. I clicked on it because of this quote that says, there's something horrifying about having your memory become part of the public mem memory. And, you know, I clicked on it because I thought, yeah, I, you know, I, I hear from readers. I get, I get emails from readers constantly. And I'm totally aware that some of my memories that are in the book have become memories now of people that don't know me. They, this is their, their memory of me, which is a totally bizarre experience. But mm -hmm. the whole interview with her is amazing, and I totally recommend it to everybody, not just people who write memoir. Um, but it was another reminder that, yeah, so everything that I put out there, people walk around with this, these ideas that this is who I was and that that's all there is to it or, like, 
or that I gave them enough information that they have formed a whole idea of, of who I am and what my experience was. And they just don't, they don't have it all. I'm mm-hmm. not, I, I'm not going to give it all, you know? Yeah. So. And I think also, um, it's interesting because I've been having a lot of conversations with other writers and, um, other people who share their lives online, right? Whether they're coaches or therapists or um, writers or artists. And there's this idea um, about the difference between um, privacy and secrecy as well. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think um, sometimes Mm. people who interact with us can think, well, if we don't share everything, then we're keeping secrets. (laughs) Instead of looking at that, place of having boundaries and saying, no, this is, this is my private Mm -hmm. space. This is what I choose to share. And, um, so I think that that's also a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you talk about that sort of pendulum swing from having no boundaries and not Mm -hmm. even understanding them to going overboard Um, with boundaries. And I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, um, whether we're even aware of it or not. I know for myself, I had no concept of boundaries Mm. until I was um, well into my mid-20s. Yes. Um, Uh And that idea of um, just not even, not even understanding and um, the way that I wrote during that time, mm-hmm. you know, really everything that I wrote up until I was, um, you know, if I'm really honest with myself, probably 26. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I go back and read it now, just to, to see, oh my goodness, I had no boundaries. Like not right. just did I not understand other people's boundaries, but in my writing, what I wrote uh-huh. was... Um, you know, uh, like it was more like a pile of goo yeah, than yeah. a jello mold, yes, <laughs> uh, yes. you know? And so I think there's something to be said. Um, you talk about having distance from an experience before you can really write about it the way that you, um, the way that you want it to be presented in the world. And I, I think that that, that there's also a piece of that that comes into play when we're learning about boundaries and learning about ourselves, the way that we see ourselves at 30 or 40 or 50 is so different. Yes. And that's not to say that there is something wrong with writing a memoir at 22 right. or writing a memoir at 18. There are, there are important things that we can share and stories yes. that we can tell that we couldn't necessarily tell the same way at 30 or 40. I'm reminded of, um, I sat down and talked to Sue William Silverman. Uh-huh. And she talks about the, the way that a memoir is a moment. It doesn't have to be your whole story in one book. In fact, it's better if it's not your whole story in one book. Okay. And right. so there's also that piece of the story that I tell about an experience at 25 is not the same story that I'm telling at 30. Absolutely. So there's, I think those are all really important pieces to remember as we talk about writing memoir and as we talk about telling these stories that are sometimes not easy to tell. Yes. And, and how we take care of ourselves and how we have our boundaries. Right. 
That makes me think of an experience where my very first mentor in graduate school read a section from the very first draft of excavation. And he told me that he was embarrassed about a, a particular section. And he's like somebody who I feel like, you know, he wouldn't be embarrassed by much. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he told me that he had this response of just like, oh my God, like too much information. <laughs> I was like, really? Oh my God. I had no concept that mm. that much information. Um, and at first I didn't really know what to make of that. And it took me several years to look at it and go, oh my gosh, this totally does not fit. Like this doesn't have to be there this, this way that I originally put it there. And that again, it was some kind, it was like some kind of weird boundary that I wasn't paying attention to in myself until I was old enough to go, oh, that doesn't really need to be there. I don't really know what my intention was when I put that there, but I can see why this would give somebody a certain reaction. You know, and there are writers that are looking for that kind of reaction, but I knew that at that point I didn't want that kind of reaction. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wendy, it has been so great to talk with you. I want to give you a chance to... um, Share some of your thoughts about writing and about uh, storytelling and um, about sharing our hard stories with listeners directly before we end our our conversation today. Mm -hmm. I think that um, sort of on the same note of what we're talking about, one of the things that I think about a lot when I'm talking to, to people who are writing difficult stories, hard stories, is to really pay attention internally to what is happening in you as you're writing it, as you read it aloud by yourself, as you read it aloud to somebody else. Um, When you give it to readers, what that does to you internally. It's really, I feel like writers could maybe be a lot more in touch with their bodies in a certain way than, um, than they, they might be like we, Writing requires like obviously a lot of sitting unless you're like, you know, really cool and have a standing desk or something, but it's, it's hard to like be in the body when you're just sitting a lot, whether it's reading or writing. Um, I just feel like it's super important for us to be in touch with when we're writing that difficult stuff, what is happening to us in our bodies? Um, That alone might be worth writing about to really get into that space of, of um, here's what I know my body is going through as I write this. Um, here's what I know my body's going through when I read this out loud by myself or to somebody else. Um, those, are, those are markers that I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to pay more attention to. And I, I feel like I respond well to other writers that are writing from that place of, of consciousness around what's happening in their bodies as they're writing about a certain experience or as they're retelling it or as they're even in the process of writing that experience, like what is going on in the body? So that's, that's my personal kind of wish is to read more work that really gets across the point that like you are feeling this in your body because frankly, that's what happens is like if you're really 
if you're really paying attention, I think, to what is happening in your body, your reader's going to feel it bodily. And that's what I want. That's personally what I want with my writing is for people to feel it in their body. So, um, yeah, I just, that's what I also wish to read more mm. of in the world. Mm. Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I could not agree more. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Wendy, it's just been so fabulous to sit and talk with you. I feel like we could talk for hours. I know, we really could. It's this has true. Been so much fun. Thank you. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you online at wendyortiz.com. And you also have a really active uh, Tumblr presence as well as on Twitter at Wendy C. Ortiz. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad that you said yes and that you are putting your writing in the world. You. It's, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with author, editor, and lover of thunderstorms, Camille Greep. Also, tune in next Monday, August 17th, for a very special bonus episode featuring Starhawk, author of The Spiral Dance and The Fifth Sacred Thing. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.